In Mark chapter 4, Jesus claims that the kingdom of God is like a mustard seed, which is weird because Jesus' contemporaries were expecting, well, the kingdom of God. They were expecting a kingdom that was going to come with great power and might and make their enemies tremble. Not exactly something you'd associate with something so small as a mustard seed. But Jesus is clear that a mustard seed is an appropriate metaphor for the kingdom that he's bringing. In this episode, we're going to unpack this parable and explore the ways that Mark's narrative puts Jesus' promise of the kingdom in continuity with a lot of the prophetic promises that Israel would have been holding on to at the time of Jesus. And we're going to see that even though Jesus' kingdom was not exactly what his contemporaries were expecting, it is indeed understood by Jesus' followers to be the kingdom that Israel has been waiting for. Brennan, do you like mustard? Um, it's uh, yes, ish. I put it on things, not overly. It's more of a, a mix condiment that you mix with others. Okay, I <laughs> I'm really disappointed in you right now because I love mustard. Yeah, like, no. honestly, my favorite condiment. I would rather dip my fries in mustard than you in ketchup. Are that's disgusting, actually. It's. I, it's I not know, a dip. Man. It cannot. That's not a crossover. You don't get to decide what mustard is. <laughs> is it? Yeah, I, I think society has. I'm just telling you that that's already decided. I when I eat a hot dog, I cover that puppy of mustard. Same with burgers. Yeah. Same and like one of my favorite things in the world is dark rye bread with some corned beef and some sauerkraut. And a nice spoonful of whole grain mustard. All right, we could continue. You, we could continue this conversation, but we should probably <laughs> cut it before this just becomes a sandwich podcast. <laughs> but do you see? Do you see the segue I'm forming? Uh, yes, I, I I clued in right away. Uh, what then? Tell me, what's the segue uh, we're doing here? Well, you're uh, probably going to go into the mustard seed parable. Wow. Yeah, that's really, that's really good, Brennan. You're really keen. Yes. <laughs> yeah. We're going to talk about the mustard seed today. Sweet. What do you know about mustard seeds? L- literally nothing either than the Bible te- says it's the small seed, but then I know that we have now discovered the smaller seed, but in their times, it was the smallest seed known. Is, is there a smaller seed now? Yeah. I forgot what it was, but I do. Well, I mean, we could find out right now. I'm not that interested (laughs) in the world. Uh, The smallest seeds in the world come from tropical orchids and weigh just 10 billionths of an ounce. That's like a. Okay. That's very small. That's almost. Well, yeah. Okay. So we in in modern days we could perhaps adapt this parable to be tro- the tropical orchid seed. But I also but part of the mustard seed thing is that it grows into a big tree, bush, plant, whatever you call it. Uh I don't think the orchids would. So you'd still need something that's a small seed but a but a very big growth. What do tropical orchids look like? <laughs> okay. <laughs> Dryden, you want to keep these to like half an hour? We gotta, yeah, not, we gotta keep moving, buddy. They're they're 
they're not they're not as big. Yeah, I I stand I stand corrected. Mustard seed is still a pretty good, um, uh, pretty good image there. Yeah. Okay. Well, I'm disappointed that you don't quite share my love of mustard because we are going to be talking <laughs> about mustard a lot today. But it, okay. at least you're kind of there with me. <laughs> so, today we're talking about three things: mustard, okay. uh, eschatology, and right. apocalypse. Cool. What do you know about eschatology? Uh, it's just sort of, uh, the study of like, oh, I should actually know how to explain this, but I guess I can't. Th- it's usually like what people call the end times, the study, but it's like, yeah, yeah. the study of the yeah. end times, I guess, or what's to come in the future, sort what's of to like come. Pr- that's a, Maybe that's a better way to put it. I think because right. when we, it's not always. When, when we talk about the end times, we think left behind. We think left behind, exactly. <laughs> yeah. And you and I both know. I wrote. I wrote a big blog post on my personal blog about this mm-hmm. this week. Uh, yeah, left behind is not the way to go if you want. Yeah. If you want to know the the biblical vision of uh, the the future of creation, but more on that later. Okay. What we should keep in mind when we talk about eschatology and the eschatological elements in what we'll be talking about in this episode. What we should keep in mind is a bit what we were talking about in the previous episode, basically Israel's hopes for the future. Right. The whole prophetic tradition coming down to Israel or coming down to like Jesus's fellow Israelites from what we would call the Old Testament, the promises of a new creation, the promises of a new kingdom, uh the promises of a a messiah figure mm. all those all those kind of hopes are wrapped up in what israel is expecting for the future second thing we need to define is apocalypse okay right tell me tell me what comes to mind when you hear the word apocalypse well and i'm gonna lean away from the mic and take a sip of my espresso okay um i well like what comes to mind still and probably for most people is one thing but i have listened to the bible project podcast on apocalypse so what comes to mind is like something that you know really is like brings the end times like some sort of terrible uh, who something that like pretty much destroys the world in a sense you know a meteor or some zombie plague or something that's worse than COVID 19 um (laughs) yeah uh but what apocalypse actually means i know this is like a revealing Boom. oh no i'm thinking of Re- oh yeah it's the same yeah right i was yeah. gonna say i'm thinking of revelation but it is no but that's like, where yeah. that's where the book of revelation gets its name because right. in the ancient world it was called the apocalypse of john right it's way cooler which is way cooler yeah i agree i don't know why we changed it <sighs> come on the apocalypse of john yeah. <laughs> uh yeah no and depeche mode has a song john the revelator Oh, cool. About John writing Revelation, but yeah. more on that later. <laughs> um, so you, you're absolutely correct. Apocalypse essentially refers to the act of unveiling or revealing something that has previously been hidden. Right. It makes a lot of sense when you unpack the Greek etymology. So the Greek prefix apo, A-P-O, basically makes something the opposite. So then the word, the Greek word calypto, which is yeah. the second part. It's like hidden. It, right? it, yeah. Well, it's the action of hiding something oh, okay. or the action of covering something up. Right. So apocalypto is the opposite action. It's revealing. Cool. It's like something had something on top of it that was covering it up, but you're yeah. taking that thing off and you're revealing what's underneath. 
Right. So, biblically speaking, apocalypse. Uh, actually, okay, I found this definition online, which I really like. This is actually straight from Wikipedia, which was surprising because <laughs> I really didn't like the way Wikipedia talked about eschatology, but I thought they yeah. did a good job of defining apocalypse. So, it went some lose some. Cool. So, from Wikipedia, it says an apocalypse is a disclosure or revelation of great knowledge. In religious concepts, an apocalypse usually discloses something very important that was hidden or provides what Bart Ehrman has termed a vision of heavenly secrets that can make sense of earthly realities. Hmm. So, okay. yeah, Bart, yeah. Ehrman is a, Bart Ehrman is a very well-known and somewhat controversial New Testament scholar, but oh. uh, I believe that he is absolutely bang on in his definition here. Right. Um, it's, it's essentially a revelation of divine and heavenly knowledge that makes sense of reality here on earth. Yeah. And in a biblical context, apocalypse is almost always wrapped up with uh, dream and vision narratives. So in the Old Testament, the biggest example of apocalyptic literature is the book of Daniel. Right. And the book of Daniel is all about interpreting dreams. It's all about dreams and visions. And it's through the dream and vision narratives that this apocalyptic knowledge comes into play or is revealed. Okay. And then the New Testament version of Daniel essentially is Revelation, which again is told within this kind of vision narrative where John says, this is a vision that was given to me while I was on the island of Patmos. Whether or not it was literally a vision that was given to him or he was just like writing under conviction and he was using vision as like a literary device, I'm not sure. It doesn't really matter. But Uh, it's always, it's apocalyptic literature in the Bible is almost always in dream and vision kind of contexts. Right. Um, So with all that in mind, oh, and and I will actually add uh, when, so Daniel chapter seven is quite possibly uh, the most powerful piece of apocalyptic literature in the Old Testament. And Daniel chapter 7 shows up all over the Gospels. So anyone who's listening to this, who's been a Bible reader for any length of time, go spend a little bit of time with Daniel chapter 7, know it intimately, and then as you read through the Gospels, you can you can pick up tidbits of Daniel chapter 7 pretty much everywhere. And we're going to talk a little bit about that in this episode and what do you mean you said uh it's most powerful powerful imagery powerful just Uh, because like word of god wise yeah i would say i would say powerful in that i think it contains the most hope that israel would have been holding on to okay because it's in daniel chapter 7 that you get this vision of uh one it says one like the son of man right uh, which basically means a human being uh, ascending and kind of becoming one with the Father, and it's this prophetic image of a human being as- like attaining divine status, and right. it's this kind of Messiah figure that's being expected. Now, when Jesus refers to himself as the Son of Man, there are people who suggest. Now, I want to be clear: this is heavily deba- this is heavily debated. So, I'm not saying one way or the other whether this is true, but. It is possible when Jesus calls himself the Son of Man in the Gospels that that is him placing himself in this 
a prophecy from the book of Daniel, which talks about one like the Son of Man, uh, like being seated at the right hand of the Father. Is that's debated? I, I like maybe I was just taught that. I always just thought that that was like yeah assumed so, and kind of clear. What's the um? So basically, it? it's unclear whether it's unclear whether that would have been a commonly used term uh, within the religious communities around Jesus. Like if that term son of man is a term that they would have been familiar with. Okay. Okay. And if, and it's also, yeah, I was not at all prepared to talk about this today. So I, sorry. No, it's fine. (laughs) It's totally fine. Off the top of my head. I don't know the exact arguments for and against, but, um, yeah, so I mean, there are scholars who say he's definitely referencing Daniel chapter seven, right? And then there are other scholars who say that that kind of son of man terminology wouldn't have been uh, common in the religious communities around Jesus. And if he was referencing Daniel chapter seven, that's not necessarily how it would have been received. Hmm. Okay. Um, okay. Yeah, I yeah, I we will talk about that at some point in this series, and I will be much better prepared to talk about it at a future date. But all good. Yeah. For just, now, that, that one caught Brennan, me I just, I need you to stop putting all this pressure on me. I wasn't, <laughs> I wasn't prepared to talk about that tonight. Okay. I'm sorry. Um, but actually I do have my Bible right here in front of me and I might actually read a little bit of Daniel chapter seven. Okay. If I can find the book of Daniel. It's in the old Testament. Thanks. Brennan. <laughs> here it is. Um, yeah, so Daniel chapter seven in my Bible has the heading, uh, vision of the four beasts. Um, basically the story is uh, a dream that's given to Daniel. Um, and the dream is very confusing. He dreams of, of four different beasts, which kind of, uh, it's implied that they represent four different empires or four different kingdoms that are given different amounts of authority over the earth for different periods of time. Okay. Um, here we go. And chapter seven, verse 13. It starts, I kept looking in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, one like a son of man was coming, and he came up to the Ancient of Days. So Ancient of Days is just an old Jewish idiom for God, basically. Cool. Uh, And was presented before him, and to him was given dominion, glory, and a kingdom, that all peoples, nations, and men of every language might serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which will not pass away, and his kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. As for me, Daniel, my spirit was distressed within me, and the visions in my mind kept alarming me. I approached one of those who were standing by and began asking him the exact meaning of all this. Uh, so this is, uh, I believe here he's speaking to, to one of the beasts who's appeared to him in his vision. Mm. Um, here we go. And it says, these great beasts, which are four in number, are four kings who will arise from the earth. But the saints of the highest one will receive the kingdom and possess the kingdom forever for all ages to come. Uh, And then Daniel goes on a little bit unpacking what the other beasts mean. Um, Here we go. Until the Ancient of Days came and judgment was passed in favor of the saints of the highest one, and the time arrived when the saints took possession of the kingdom. Thus he said, the fourth beast will be a fourth kingdom on the earth, which will be different from all other kingdoms, and it will devour the whole earth and tread it down and crush it. 
So it's it's really weird to read this without giving any context about the rest of the vision right. that's happening in this chapter. Yeah. But essentially what's happening here is there's four beasts which are kind of said to represent four different empires or four different kingdoms which will kind of dominate the earth. Okay. And then the final kingdom is what Daniel explains uh, will be a different kind of kingdom and it will be given to the holy ones of God or like, you know, the followers of God, we, we might say, or the righteous ones of God. And, uh, yeah. And the time arrived when the saints took possession of the kingdom. So let's keep that in mind. So this, when I said this is the, like, this is one of the most powerful apocalyptic texts from the Old Testament, there's a lot of material here that the jewish people of jesus's day would have been holding on to okay so you know yeah we're currently under the opposition we're currently under the oppression of rome yeah Uh, before this there was you know babylon and assyria and egypt and all the others but we've been promised that there is another kingdom coming which will be unlike the others and it will be given to us and blah 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 and this one like the son of man will be you know seated at the right hand of the father and you know, these would have been kind of these eschatological hopes that the Israelites of Jesus' day would have really been holding on to. Okay. Okay. You 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 look like you have questions. No, but. no. I'm just trying to just trying to take in some of the imagery. I think I'm. I think I'm. I, there's there's a lot. So there's a lot. I don't really have a specific question. We're good. <laughs> yeah. No. There's a lot. There's a lot going on. Mm-hmm. Um. And that is a key feature of apocalyptic literature both the book of daniel and if we fast forward all the way to revelation imagery all over the place yeah uh imagery symbol metaphor it's and just straight up bizarre it's Mm -hmm. the it's the biblical it's the biblical equivalent of heavy metal it's a lot of blood and destruction and intensity and you know but it's all it's all very representative of what's actually going on. You know what I mean? None of it, none of it is to be taken at face value, like literally. Right. Okay. Yeah. And I'm open to the fact that I might be wrong. Like there might actually just be four giant animal beasts that are coming to, (laughs) (laughs) there might be a Godzilla kind of thing happening, which will, (laughs) you know, fulfill this prophecy. But yeah. um, No, that was, that was a joke. Please don't take that seriously. Oh, someone's gonna one day when we get really famous, someone's gonna take that clip completely out of context and be like, Dryden doesn't know what he's talking about. The Bible prophesied Godzilla. Um, okay, so there's worse things that could probably be taken out of context. That's true, that's true. Um, I know. Yeah, like I know even with like COVID and everything, a lot of churches have been like scared to like put their sermons online and stuff because yeah. there's been like so many instances of that, like people taking single snippets of sermons. And anyway, that's all <laughs> beside the point. We are now going to take a snippet of Jesus's sermon and try really hard to not take it out of context. Okay. So the reason I've given this whole preamble about, uh, the role of apocalyptic literature and eschatology and the hopes of Israel is because we need to keep this in the back of our heads when we approach Jesus's basically anything about Jesus, right? but especially Jesus's talks about the kingdom of God. And like we said in the last episode, 
that is exactly what's going on in the parables. They mm-hmm. aren't just they aren't just neat little moral lessons. They're yeah. much larger statements about about the kingdom of God and right. the kingdom that Jesus is bringing with his ministry. Yeah. So um so in Daniel we have this concept that uh the time is coming when the kingdom will be when the kingdom will be revealed and the kingdom will be given to uh the righteous ones of God. And in uh in Mark chapter 1 Jesus's message is the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God has drawn near. Now, little side note here. One of the fun things about Greek is that the in biblical Greek there's two different words for time. Uh, one is kairos and the other is chronos. So, chronos is where we get the word like chronology or chronological. Chronos right. has to deal with like the actual flow of time. Okay. Whereas kairos is a specific time, like mm. a specific point in time. Right. So, when Jesus says the time is fulfilled, it's Kairos that he's using there. It's like there is a specific time for the kingdom to be revealed, which is now here. Okay, cool. And he's he's tapping into these prophetic expectations, um, especially from the book of Daniel, but they show up elsewhere as well. Yeah. And basically, like the more I learn about this stuff, the more I realize like it's no wonder this guy got crucified. Like, <laughs> could you imagine? Like, he's literally talking to like the world's Jewish population and saying yeah. like, yeah, I'm the one who's doing that. Like all, all of those prophecies that you're holding on to all of that hope you're holding on to, it's being fulfilled in me like yeah. right here. Like that's <laughs> like, that's crazy. Mm-hmm. Um, and this is part of what we said he's doing with the parables. In in the last episode, we talked about this, how the kingdom of God that Jesus is bringing is not exactly the kingdom that a lot of his contemporaries were expecting. Right. So the parables are kind of these images that we now, in hindsight, realize what he was explaining and realizing, or we realize in hindsight, how the parables make clear the ministry of Jesus and the entire gospel, really. Right. But at the time, it would have been very confusing mm-hmm. to the people of his day who were expecting like actual political liberation from their current situation or expecting yeah. uh, like a, a kingdom of their own political sovereignty, a new king like David. And I think actually the next episode that we do is going to be about Jesus and David cool, and how the gospel like authors that. kind of identify Jesus as being like the successor of David's kingdom. Yeah. Even though Jesus' kingdom is complete, looks not at all like David's kingdom. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I think that'll probably be the next episode. But cool. who knows, I might fall into another rabbit hole. <laughs> so, Brennan, with all this in mind, I want you to read uh, Mark chapter 4, verse 30 to 32. Okay. I, I have my Bible open, or do you want me to read the translation you sent me? Which I don't I'm going to need you to read the translation, because I, <laughs> I sent you okay. the correct translation. Oh, wow. And <laughs> j- jokes. jokes. <laughs> okay. Uh, Mark 4, 30-32. Yeah. And he was saying, how shall we picture the kingdom of God? And he is Jesus here. <laughs> he is Jesus, yeah. yeah. How shall we picture the kingdom of God? Or by what parable shall we present it? 
It is like a mustard seed, which when sown upon the soil, though it is the smallest of all the seeds. Oh, a lot of words. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> Just a so lot of comments. This is, the, right, um, this is the NASB that we're reading, okay. which is like it, it tries to maintain as much of the original Greek and Hebrew sentence structure as it can. Right. And they didn't have grammar. <laughs> and the result of that is that it's not always very easy English to read, but it's very good Greek, All I right. can assure you. Cool. I'll start with the, the mustard seed yeah. word again. I'll be a little slower because I just get tripped up. Okay. It is like a mustard seed, which, when sown upon the soil, though it is the smallest of all the seeds that are upon the soil, yet when it's sown, it grows up and becomes larger than all the garden plants and forms large branches, which the result, with the result that the birds of the sky can nest under its shade. Okay. Do you notice that the birds of the sky can nest under its shade is all in capital letters? <laughs> yeah. Did you want me to scream that? <laughs> yeah, if you wouldn't mind, just stand a little bit back from the mic. We're Pentecostal. We can scream a little bit. Um, okay. Now, that that phrase there, the birds of the sky can nest under its shade. Mm-hmm. Keep that in mind. And now I'm going to read from Ezekiel chapter 17. So okay. this is an Old Testament prophet. And um, actually, before I read that, I'm going to explain. Um, I'm going to give a little bit of context, and this is from uh, Dr. Richard Hayes, who's the scholar that we've been kind of working with through the whole Gospel of Mark. He says that in um, Ezekiel chapter 17, this is his quote, the restoration of the Davidic kingdom is symbolized by God's planting of a cedar twig on a high and lofty mountain. So essentially, it's the it's that whole prophetic tradition of a new kingdom of God, David's kingdom being restored, you know, right. A new kingdom for the, for the Israelites. It's that kind of prophetic, um, that kind of prophetic theme that Ezekiel is, uh, speaking into here. Okay. And basically in, in this passage from Ezekiel, the king, the kingdom of David, or like the restored kingdom of David is personified as a cedar tree. Okay. Okay. So Ezekiel says, This is what the Lord God says I will also take a sprig from the lofty top of the cedar and set it out. I will break off from the topmost of its young twigs a tender one, and I will plant it on a high and lofty mountain. On the high mountain of Israel I will plant it, so that it may bring forth branches and bear fruit and become a stately cedar and birds of every kind will nest under it. They will nest in the shade of its branches. So, by putting that phrasing after Jesus' parable of the mustard seed, mm-hmm. what's being suggested is that Jesus' kingdom, the kingdom that Jesus is bringing with his ministry and with his message, is continuous with the restored kingdom of David that the Israelites are expecting and that is being prophesied through the, pretty much the whole Old Testament. Okay. But in Ezekiel, it's a cedar tree. Now, cedar is always a kind, of, kind of a symbol of strength throughout the Old Testament. Um, right. My favorite example is in the book of Job, when 
God, that really cool part in the book of Job where God is describing Leviathan and Behemoth, like the two oh, monsters. Yeah. yeah. When he describes Behemoth, he says his tail is like a cedar tree. So it's like, so cedar is always kind of an image. It's like, it's a big tree. It's an image of strength, right? And so Jesus is saying, no, actually the kingdom of God is like a mustard seed. Hmm. But then this phrasing, but the birds of the sky will nest in its shade. Yeah. He's putting his ministry and the kingdom that he's bringing in continuity with the kingdom and with the kingdom that is being prophesied by the Old Testament prophets. Okay. Oh, okay. So I feel like I've just said a lot, but mm. please stop me if you have any questions. Um, no, no, I, I don't think so. Like, it makes sense. There's a lot more going on than, um, you know, when you just read it, you know, yeah. without that context, you're like, okay, the birds, it's big enough for birds, <laughs> I guess. Cool. I guess. Um, but yeah. Well, like, and that's why, like, in... in in the NASB, which is the version that I use, that that sentence is capitalized mm-hmm. um, when Jesus uses it, which yeah. means, which is the NASB's way of showing that he's quoting from the Old Testament, yeah, or that he's quoting from elsewhere. Also, so in, yeah, oh, sorry, I, uh, oh, I was just ahead. gonna say, um, I think this is just a side note, but I, I had to memorize. Isaiah 50, it's been a while since I've, I don't know if I can still say it off by heart, probably not. I had to memorize Isaiah 53 for uh, mm. Bible college. And I think uh, just in the same, like in Ezekiel 17 there, when it says a tender one, I think um, Isaiah also says, because that's like the prophecy of of Jesus, uh, mm. like a very clear prophecy of, of Jesus and um, his like crucifixion also is part of that. Um, but I think it also uses the same like tender shoot, like it, uh, you know, okay. personifies Jesus as like, yeah, part of a tree. So I don't know. Um, you I, might be absolutely correct. I think that's trees. There, cool. I will say trees show up friggin' everywhere. From yeah. <laughs> to Revelation. There are trees. The Bible loves trees. <laughs> Straight up. The Bible loves trees. So, it would. I would absolutely not be surprised if you were correct. If there was a little bit of tie in there between Isaiah and Ezekiel, yeah. Um, there is also. I don't know if this. This might be getting a little more on the mystical side of things and less on the prophetic side of things, but there is also talk in the scholarly world of the cross that Jesus was crucified on mm-hmm. is basically like a tree, right? Yeah, because it's like I've a, heard that. Yeah, because it's like you know, it's a big piece of wood. Yeah, you know, and and it's 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 high up on the hill, and he's raised up on the tree. And yeah, well, isn't um, there a New Testament verse that even like says it might have been like some from Paul that's like Jesus, something about talking about Jesus, and then there's a old there's an Old Testament verse that says like uh, anyone who hangs on a tree is cursed. So it's like he became cursed for oh, us. I, oh, like, oh, so oh, yeah. I think that's a verse in the New Testament. You, you, yeah, I, okay, we'll do, you know what? We'll do an episode on that. Jesus and trees. Cool. But this is the first little tidbit of Jesus and trees is in Ezekiel, you have the kingdom being prophesied as being like a cedar tree. Right. And then Jesus comes and puts his kingdom in continuity with that basically says that he's fulfilling that prophecy, but he says that the kingdom is like a mustard seed. Right. So you, you can imagine that 
there's confusion here. There's contrast, obviously, between a cedar tree and a mustard seed. Yeah. And if you were expect, if you were living with this expectation that, oh, the kingdom of God's going to be like a cedar tree, it's going to be unstoppable and strong and, you know, it's hmm. going to stand for, for, it's going to stand forever, blah, blah, blah. And then Jesus comes and claims that he's fulfilling that prophecy, but now the kingdom is like a mustard seed. You hmm. can imagine there's confusion there. Yeah. Right. Um, I think actually, oh no, I don't, I thought I had a quote written down for that. Okay. It's okay. We'll edit that part out. Now, Brennan. Yeah. Think about, um, keep thinking about this. About. I'm trying to piece it together. I'm I'm actually trying. I'm being like, why? Okay, then why would Jesus change the the plant? What's the well? Well, is than, he is okay. he changing the plan? Plant or is I he said. just changing? <laughs> is is he changing the plan or is he just um? Is he adjusting the expectation? Because here's the thing, and this is me. I'm off notes right now. Like this yeah. is just me thinking out loud. In Jesus's resurrection, it is made pretty clear even death itself can't hold back the kingdom. Yeah. And, you know, um, uh, an American theologian, David Bentley Hart, he said, Easter should make rebels of us all. And his point is that, you know, if the one of the strongest empires in human history, the Roman Empire, they couldn't even hold back the kingdom through like they put Jesus to death to try to silence his message and death itself couldn't stop it. Right. Yeah. yeah. So if that's the kingdom that we belong to, we have no reason to fear the kingdoms of this world. We have, we have no reason to, um, yeah, we have no reason to fear the kingdoms of this world. Yeah. And so, when Jesus comes with his ministry and says, you know, the kingdom of God is like a mustard seed, it starts small, but it grows into this huge plant and the birds of the sky can come and nest under its shade and, and blah, blah, blah. Mm-hmm. Is, I, 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 he's not, I don't think he's canceling the narrative from Ezekiel or the narrative from Daniel, which is that this kingdom will come and it will last forever and it will be inherited by the righteous ones of God. I don't think he's canceling that narrative or changing anything. I think he's more so, I almost want to say reassuring his audience that, yeah, it's starting small, but it can still grow into something huge. Yeah. And you think, and, um, do we think here that like just using the the small seed is just a statement about like, okay, this might not be what you think. This isn't me coming in to, um, you know, take over as King and have a political uprising, yeah. but like, it's a, like, where does the, the small come in? Does, but, is it just changing? But that's, but that's the paradox. The paradox is I'm not coming in as a military leader to overthrow the Romans, which might be what you guys were hoping for. Yeah. But like, I'm coming in as a pretty meek and humble servant. I'm coming in in service of the poor and, and the widow and the refugee. 
but still the Roman Empire itself can't hold me back. Right. Can't hold back this kingdom. Okay. Yeah. So I don't think like I don't think Ezekiel was wrong to mm-hmm. say that it's like a cedar tree. Yeah. I don't think I don't think Daniel was wrong to say that the kingdom of God um that the kingdom of God will trample over all over all other empires. Because there is still um and and we will talk about this. I know I say this a lot, but we'll talk about this in future episodes. <laughs> there is still eschatological hope, especially throughout the rest of the New Testament, like in the letters of Paul and in uh, in the book of Acts, and even in direct teachings from Jesus, there's still eschatological hope that a final judgment on the world's empires is coming. Yeah. A final reconciliation is coming. Like a final recreation of the world is coming. Yeah, for sure. Like just just because it's starting small, starting with the person of Jesus, and it's starting paradoxically with this uh, you know, homeless teacher who wandered around teaching for three years and then was crucified, you know, yeah. even though it started small, this isn't where it's ending. Mm-hmm. Like I don't I don't think anything about Jesus' ministry cancels out any of the Old Testament prophecies or directly contradicts any of the Old Testament prophecies. Right. Um, and that's why, and this is made really clear in the Gospel of John, after Jesus' resurrection, things made a lot more sense for his disciples. Yeah, totally. Because they're like, oh, okay, like this is, you know, he's already tapping into this new creation, resurrection life that death itself can't stand against. And, mm-hmm. um, you know, I'm, I'm getting ahead of myself here. We will talk about this more in future episodes, <laughs> but <laughs> basically the, the, it's confusing for Jesus' audience at the time because he's putting himself in continuity with Israel's prophetic expectations of a kingdom. Right. But he's saying in his parable, the kingdom is like a mustard seed. It's starting small and it's plant, it's going to be planted really small. But it's still going to fulfill these this Old Testament prophecy that you know it will grow to be very big, and the birds will be able to come and nest under its shade. Hmm. Yada yada yada. Cool. Yeah, yeah. I I think it is cool. Yeah, that's the conclusion. <laughs> now, Brennan. Yeah, we're going to talk about one more thing. Okay, and and this is actually this this is going to, I think, tie in really nicely to what we just said. I want you to read this next little passage that I gave you from uh, Mark chapter 5. So, Mark yeah. 5, verse what? 1 to 13. Okay, so many words. All right, I know, me, let me I make, know, but me, I, I really, I have faith in you. Let me make this a little, let me make this a little bigger. Okay, and this is, this is a very famous story. Oh, 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 I zoomed out. (laughs) Okay, all right. I'm here. Yes, okay. Mark 5, 1 of 13. They came to the other side of the sea, into the region of, do you want to help me say that? Uh, Yeah, I don't know if it's Gerasenes or Gerasenes. We'll say Gerasenes. We can see Gerasenes, yeah. (laughs) Gerasenes. Into the region of Gerasenes. When he got out, when he, when he got out of the boat, immediately a man from the tombs with an unclean spirit met him. He lived among the tombs, and no one was able to bind him anymore, 
not even with a chain because he had often been bound with shackles and chains and the chains had been torn apart by him and the shackles broken to pieces and no one was strong enough to subdue him. Constantly, night and day, he was screaming among the tombs and in the mountains and cutting himself with stones. Seeing Jesus from a distance, he ran up and bowed before him and shout, and shouting with a loud voice, he said, What business do you have with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I implore you, by God, do not torment me. For he had already been saying to him, Come out of the man, you unclean spirit. And he was asking him, What is your name? And he said to him, my name is Legion, for we are many. And he begged earnestly not to okay, send them Okay, stop there. Okay. Stop. Brennan, Brennan, yeah. stop right there. Okay. What does the, the man who's demon-possessed? Yeah. Jesus talks to him, and he asks the demon his name. And what's the demon's name? Says, my name is Legion, for we are many. Legion. Mm-hmm. What do you think of when you hear the word Legion? Uh, like, a, like a small army, like a group of, of people. Yes. So this is blatantly Roman language. Oh, okay, right. Like, the Roman military was, they were successful because of their legion, like, their organization into legions, or at least that was part of it. Right. Like, the organization into legions was a crucial part of Roman military structure. Okay, cool. Like, this is, this is blatantly Roman language that's being used. Right. So the demon says, my name is Legion, for we are many. Mm-hmm. And then, and then, uh, my name is Legion, for we are many. And he, and I'll, I'll read the rest. He begged him earnestly not to send them out of the region. Now there was a large herd of pigs feeding nearby on the mountain. And the demons begged him, Jesus, saying, send us into the pigs so that we may enter them. Jesus gave them permission. And coming out, the unclean spirits entered the pigs, and the herd rushed down the steep bank into the sea, about 2,000 of them, and they were drowned in the sea. So, it's a bad day for those pig farmers. It's a bad day for those pig farmers. And <laughs> this is a complete side note. They would not like Jesus. <laughs> this is, well, this is a complete side note, but I was reading about this a bit today, and a lot of, even like... Like significant Christian thinkers throughout history mm-hmm. have used this story as evidence that like humans are more valuable to God than animals, right? Which I think like, is not at all a good, a good conclusion to draw from this, <laughs> because I think I mean I'm I'm open to being wrong, but I think the text makes it clear that it was the demons who drowned the pigs. It wasn't Jesus, right? You but, know, but Jesus didn't let like. He could, yeah, but he also, it sounds like Jesus could have sent them out of the region, like they said, or, you know, Jesus doesn't always send a, out a demon into a, into another another thing. thing. Like, cause I agree that I think God values humans more than animals, but it's also not like the best exegesis because I think there's a lot more going on here. (laughs) That's not the lesson we're supposed to get from this. I don't think. Yeah. But so we can talk animal rights later. Yeah. But so what's happening here if we keep in mind that the legion is blatantly a symbol of Roman military power? Jesus is sending the legion back into the sea. Okay. Yeah. 
And I, I, I really like, I don't think I'm reading too far into this. This has been suggested by scholars before. This isn't just me, you know, this isn't just me with the red yarn on my wall tying together, <laughs> you know, tying together all the different Greek phrases and whatnot. But yeah, the fact that this is placed right after Jesus's parable chapter, because mm. chapter four of Mark is all parables. Well, it's parables, and then it's Jesus calming the water and, and Jesus right. stilling the sea. Right. And uh, the the last word of chapter four is after Jesus has calmed the sea, and the disciples say, who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? Right. So, and then, and then you get this narrative right after that, where you have this blatant symbol of Roman military power, uh, a, a competing... Well, not competing, but what would have been seen as a competitor for the Israelite people in establishing their own kingdom. Right. You have this narrative where Jesus is sending them back into the sea. And that's where, that's where the Romans would have come from. If the Roman, when the Romans invaded this region and first occupied this region, they would have arrived by sea. Oh, yeah. Cool. Okay. Yeah. And so I, I don't think it's coincidental that you have this parable chapter where Jesus is talking about the kingdom and making it pretty obvious that he's putting his own ministry in line with the prophetic expectations of the kingdom. Yeah. And then immediately after that, you have this story where he's sending the Romans back into the sea. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> I could see it. Yeah. You always, cool. you always do that. I always make, I always make what I think are these incredibly profound points. And then you're just like, oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> like, yeah. Well, like it's I, more than okay, Brennan. I think, I think it's cool. Um, but in my head, I'm always then trying to think the next step of like, okay, how does that change? Well, that changes a little bit. That changes how I view this verse. How does that change? Like, I don't know how, how I view Jesus, my relationship with yeah. him and like, so I I don't know I'm just thinking I I don't verbal process that much I just yeah <laughs> I think in my head um but no so I think basically what we're taking away from this is that both spiritual and physical powers in this world you know both the spiritual both the spiritual existence of the demons we won't yeah. we won't start unpacking. We won't start unpacking demons yet. That'll, yeah. that'll come later. But the spiritual power of the demons and the political power of the Romans at some point are all going to be accountable to Jesus and to the kingdom of God. Mm. Yeah. Which I don't think, at least, I hope that's not anything new. I hope that's not new information mm -hmm. for um, any, anyone who's been a Christian for any amount of time out there. I hope it's not new information that, you know, all, all authority, both spiritual and political and blah, 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 is uh, ultimately accountable to Jesus. Yeah. But I, I think that's something that's being pointed out here. Yeah. Is that even though Jesus's kingdom, even though the kingdom that Jesus is bringing is not exactly what we expected, the political and spiritual powers of this world are still going to have to answer to it. And that is developed much more uh, later in the New Testament, specifically uh, in some of Paul's letters and a lot in the book of Revelation, which we will get to eventually. 
but for now we're just doing mark so cool but um yeah yeah I don't really have any follow-up questions. I'm just thinking about that. And it is, no, it is that, cool. And, and I, that's okay. That's what we should do. We should just sit with it and think about it and pray about it. Yeah. And, um, oh, I need to apologize to you for something. <laughs> what? <laughs> last time, in the last episode, when we were first talking about the parables, we weren't sure if the lamp on the stand counts as a parable. Yeah. Right. And you said it's a parable, and I said I'm not sure, and then I, I made you question it. <laughs> Based on the research I've done over the last couple of days, I think that that does count as a parable. Okay, cool. I think that that is considered a parable. So yeah. if I caused you to doubt that, I apologize. <laughs> I, rep- I repent of that, and I apologize. That's okay. <laughs> I forgive you. I wasn't, I wasn't uh, really offended You weren't all. losing sleep over that one. <laughs> no. Cool. Brennan, I'll see you next week and we'll talk about Jesus and David. Sweet. Are we uh, jumping into a next chapter or uh, or uh, is this we're going to jump around? We're going to be all over the place. Okay, cool. We're going to we're going to jump around. Jump around. <laughs> jump up, jump up and get down. Okay, we'll end right. it there. Perfect time. <laughs>Thank you so much for tuning into this week's episode. Once again, my name is Dryden. I am a graduate student in theology, and joining me today was my friend Brennan, who is a pastor and worship leader. Next episode is going to be on the continuity between Jesus's mission and David's kingship in the Old Testament. So we hope to see you there. Our theme music for this episode is a song called The Great Commission by a group called Joy Spring. And the book that we are using as one of our primary sources and quoted in this episode is Echoes of Scripture in the Gospels by Dr. Richard B. Hayes.